This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Today we are reading from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Good morning, church. It's good to be back with you. Angela and I were grateful for some time away the last couple of weeks, but it's always good to be back with our church family on Sunday. You guys remember COVID, that, that, that weird thing that happened a couple years ago? You remember that? One of the things that was the funniest to me about COVID was the whole essential worker conversation. How do you determine what's essential and what's not? I mean, in my book, the ability to like go to work and earn a living was and meet basic needs is essential, but apparently that's not how we defined it when it was COVID. Uh, I mean, like most of retail was essential. I mean, really, no offense, but you being able to play the latest video game while on quarantine probably isn't essential, or buy that new TV with the stimulus check, probably not essential. Uh, but it got more and more gray as COVID went along, right? Like all of a sudden McDonald's became essential. Actually, I'm pretty sure that if you don't eat McDonald's is probably better for you than if you do. So I'm not sure how McDonald's became essential. I mean, essentials are things that we can't live without, right? I, I literally can't function without it in order for it to be essential. So what's the most essential thing to our life? And do we live like that's actually true? That's the question for us this morning, because I think we all know the Sunday school answer. The Sunday school answer is our big idea for this morning. It's Jesus is essential to life. Jesus is essential to life. This morning, we're kicking off a series in the book of Romans. So as you'll remember, we're going to spend some time in Genesis, and then we're going to go to Romans for a while, and then back to Genesis and back and forth, because the two books play together really, really well. They play off of each other. The themes from Genesis launch forward to Romans. We're going to see that like crazy in these first few messages in the book of Romans coming out of Genesis 1 through 11 that we just finished up a couple weeks ago. The tension of everyday life is what caused Paul to write Romans. So Paul was the author of Romans. We see that the first word of Romans 1.1, Paul. So we take that at its word, was writing to a group of believers in Rome. We see that in verse 7 to all those in Rome. Paul was writing to promote unity between Gentile believers and Jewish believers, What had happened was in 49 AD, Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome. They had to leave. 
And so even Jewish Christians had to leave along with them. And so eventually, after that ended, when the, when the Jewish believers were able to return, it appears that there was some sort of conflict between the Jewish believers that had go- gone and come back and the Gentile believers that were still there. Paul writes Romans in the, the mid to late 50s, somewhere in that time. So we're talking about 20 to 25 years after Jesus' death. And he does that to help with this disunity that has developed because ideas have developed when they've been apart and now there's this this tension between these two groups. And the message is clear in Romans. What he's trying to do is clarify the message of the gospel, to clarify who Jesus is and what he did and why it matters. It's true that Romans is a highly theological book. In fact, it is Paul's longest and most reasoned argument that we have. But all of that was for a very practical purpose, unity. But not just any unity, not just unity for the sake of unity, unity around the gospel, the true gospel message. What is the impact of that in our lives? That's what the book of Romans is gonna face us with week in and week out as we study it. See, misunderstanding the gospel message was causing everyday practical issues for the church. It was causing tension. It was causing division. Understanding that Jesus was essential to the function of the church was what they needed to do. They needed to see that message more clearly. And Paul had never even met these believers at this point, but he'd heard about these tensions which is really no surprise because as you remember from our study in the book of Acts, these tensions popped up over and over and over throughout the early church. So this was a common theme that was happening as the church was forming in those early days. The Romans needed to see the reality that their understanding of Jesus had massive impact to their everyday life. They needed to see that. We still need to see that now we still need to see how impactful Jesus really is. We know he should be essential. But the second question I asked you this morning, is he actually essential to your life? Do you actually live like that? The truth of the gospel is not theological only. We will dive into some deep theological truths. And those of you who know me know I will love those moments in the book of Romans. But that theology has to drive us to right living. It's not just something that we need to know. Theology isn't something we just sit in and get, get our heads puffed up and know more. It has to actually impact the way that we live. And that's our hope. That's what we're praying as we go through the book of Romans together over the coming eh, years, probably. <laughs> we'll see. So all that to Let's look at this text this morning, Romans 1, 1 through 4. We see, we, we're gonna see that Jesus is essential to life and we're gonna see that really in three ways, three realities because Jesus is essential to life we're gonna look at this morning. The first is this, we have a master. We have a master. Look back with me at verse one. It says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, Let's stop there. This is, we're gonna do a lot of this in Romans. Take small little chunks, small little words because they're just drenched with meaning. 
Paul starts by identifying himself and then he quickly, very quickly, attaches himself to Jesus. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. He says, servant, it's the Greek word doulos. It means bond servant, a slave, really. Someone under the service of another because they owe them a debt is the idea. Paul is emphasizing that the authority that he is writing this letter with is not his own authority. It comes from somebody else. It comes from someone that he is indebted to, and that is Christ Jesus. That might not jump off to the page to you as something that's interesting, but normally when Paul introduces Jesus, he uses the, the term Jesus Christ. He doesn't use Christ Jesus. So why does he, why does he flip it here? Why, why the change? Well, the very term Christ tells us that Paul knew that Jesus was the promised Messiah. He's emphasizing the Messiahship, that Jesus is the one who was promised from the Old Testament. He's emphasizing that, especially to his Jewish audience. Remember, he's got Jews and Gentiles in mind. So he's going to be dancing this line all the way throughout the book. Paul is trying to tie Jesus back to the Old Testament, saying that this isn't a new guy we're talking about. This isn't a new plan that God is working. It's always been about Jesus. In fact, the, this whole setup of being a servant of God, that whole language is language that was used in the Old Testament. It was used of Moses. It was used of Joshua. It was used of Elijah. It was even used of Nehemiah that Wayne preached on last week. Men who had been given a job to serve their master, to serve their God. Paul is trying, tying all of that back here. He's emphasizing who Jesus was and that he was the promised Messiah, the Christ. Paul had a master, the Messiah, the man Jesus. That was gonna ground literally everything else that he will say in this letter for the next 16 chapters. It grounded how he lived his life. It was true of Paul, and it should be true of us. We have a master. We should seek to serve another, to live for another. Let, let me prove it to you. Look at Colossians 3, verse 1. Colossians 3, verse 1 says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, don't miss this next phrase, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, that, that kind of puts us under the authority of somebody else. Literally, Christ is our life. It means that he should be the pursuit of our life. He should be the one that we are living for. We are called to seek and to serve God, to serve the will of another. I mean, most of us get this. We do it every day, right? You go to a job, you punch a clock, and you do the will of somebody else. They have a job that they want you to accomplish. Hopefully you also enjoy accomplishing said job. Not all of us every day, but we have a list of tasks and responsibilities that we need to accomplish to do the work of the employer that we are being paid to do. 
We're seeking to serve the company that we work for. We spend our time how they want us to spend our time. We accomplish the things that they want us to accomplish. It's absolutely what our relationship with Jesus should look like, even on a greater level. We should be seeking to do his will, not ours. Seeking to spend our time serving him, not ourselves. This is what it means that we are servants of Jesus. But do we? I mean, when we go to those jobs, what's the focus of our jobs really? Is it to serve and honor the Lord? Is it to serve and honor Jesus? What's the focus of your marriage, really? Is it you? Or is it to honor the Lord in how you love your wife or how you serve your husband? What's the focus of raising our kids, really? Is it to point them to Jesus or is it to make them help us look good? See, we can live for all kinds of things in the various roles that God has given us that aren't about being a servant of Jesus. Do we really live like we live for another? Or do we live life selfishly in pursuit of our own agenda? Moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, who are you really living for? Christ is our life. We need to set our minds on things above. We need to seek the things above. Yet life comes at us over and over and over. And it's so easy to just not even think about why we do things, to just go through life, go go through the motions. I'm just trying to keep my head above water. It takes intentionality to say, no, I am going to enter this situation thinking, how can I serve Jesus here? How can I honor the Lord with this task that he has given me? You don't have to be a pastor to do that. You don't have to be in full-time ministry. Every one of you is called to do that in every moment of every day. But it's too easy for us to just get wrapped up in the stuff of this world. And it's not wrong to enjoy life, but but how are we enjoying it? Are, Are we enjoying it just because we want the pleasure of it? Are we enjoying it with the idea that I wanna bring God glory? I wanna say, thank you, God, for this opportunity. Bakari just had a softball tournament yesterday. I had this very conversation with her as we were driving home and she was frustrated with how she played. And I asked her this question. I said, at what point did you think on the softball field, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to just play something that I love? She said, I didn't. That's the point. Like every little thing that we do has an opportunity to reflect back to the glory of God and say, I'm serving somebody else and I get to reflect to him the glory. And here's the beauty of that. When we actually do that, that is when there is fullness of joy because scripture says in your presence, there is fullness of joy. When we try to live for ourselves, how's that work for you? How's that go really? You end up bankrupt. You end up fighting all kinds of battles you shouldn't have to fight. But when we actually submit and think about serving somebody else, there is fullness of joy. Paul had a master. So do we. 
His name is Jesus. Three realities because Jesus is essential to life. We have a master, number one. The second, we have a role. We have a role. What does Paul say next? Look back at verse one of the book of Romans. He says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. He was called to be an apostle. That was Paul's calling. This is the technical term for apostle. It means a special place as one appointed by Christ himself to preach the gospel. That, that's the idea. He was called. Paul makes it clear that this wasn't his doing. He, he was called out of it. And if you remember in the book of Acts, it was a very uh, specific calling. <laughs> he gets knocked off a horse as he's traveling to do the exact opposite of preach the gospel. It, it was very specific to Paul. It's the effective work of God in Paul's life. That's what he's emphasizing in the language he's using here. He, he didn't want that. We saw the story in the book of Acts. He wanted anything but that. He wanted to persecute the church of God. But God called Paul to be an apostle, to be a minister of the gospel. Paul had an office. He had a role. He was given a purpose by God. And you're like, yeah, but I haven't been shown a bright light like that. Yeah, Paul had a role, but so do you. He's gonna emphasize this. Flip over to Romans chapter 12. Let's look at it. Romans chapter 12. We'll pick up in Romans chapter 12, verse three. It says this, For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So according to Romans 12, how many of you have been given gifts? All of us. You have been given gifts. You have been given talents. You have been given skills and abilities that God wants you to use for him. Those gifts and talents, newsflash, are not for you, but they are for the benefit of the body of Christ. They are for the benefit of bringing glory to God. It's not actually about you. It says, let us use them. So on our vacation, we had the amazing opportunity to, to visit Alaska on a cruise to celebrate my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. And I will tell you, if you ever get the opportunity to go, you absolutely should. It's an amazing experience. You get to see the vastness of God in massive, very, very cool ways. The, the trip was great and mostly uneventful until the plane ride home. So we had a, a red-eye flight leaving at 11.25 p.m. with three small children. Maybe not our best plan ever. Actually, that wasn't the problem, though. On our flight, there were not one, not two, not 
three, but four different people who passed out on this flight. The goal of this flight was to sleep, right? Like just, I just wanna knock out for a couple hours, just get some sleep and then we'll drive home and it's gonna be great. However, the first person that passed out, passed out about three chairs over from Angela, who is a nurse. And so she jumped out of chair, practically throwing Eli in the process uh, to just jump into full-on nurse mode. So she probably ended up out of her seat for about three of the four hours of the flight, uh, caring for people. I mean, running up and down the aisle as one person gets back to consciousness, then somebody else like passes out. And I mean, she had a lady in the back of the plane where she literally had to put an IV in this person. I mean, it, it, it was nurse beast mode. I was very impressed. Um, I don't get to see that side of Angela, just hear about it. Uh, she jumped into action. She used the gifts and abilities that God had given her to help those people on the airplane. But what if she didn't? What if she was just like, eh, I'm just gonna put my sleep mask on and my AirPods in and I'm just gonna go to sleep. Well, I can tell you, we probably wouldn't have landed in Chicago. We probably would have had to land somewhere else. They would have had to end the flight early or at least get those people some medical care on the ground before we could get back in the air. Those people could have maybe had some complications. I don't know, I'm not a medical person. It would have been worse for literally everybody involved. It also would have been worse for everyone involved if I had gotten out of my seat and tried to put the IV in the plane because then instead of four people passed out, there would have been five. Uh, that's not my skills and ability. Everybody on that plane should have been grateful. I was holding the one and a half year old, not trying to put an IV in because that was not gonna go well for anybody either, trust me. In an emergency medical situation, we would expect a doctor or a nurse to act, right? But, but what about in church? I mean, you hear about it all the time. 20% of the people do 100% of the work. But... 100% of the people we just established from the book of Romans have been given gifts to use, right? 100% of the people should be using their gifts. And we expect that of other people. Well, yeah, you have this massive gift. I expect you to use it. But you have one as well. Are you using your gift? Or are you holding back? You're like, well, I'm, I'm no apostle, I'd agree you're not an apostle, by the way, because I don't think we have those anymore, but you've been given gifts and talents. Some of you steward those really, really well. I wanna commend you for that. Some of you serve faithfully week in and week out in our church and you serve so well. But some of you are holding back. And you, you have a role. And that role may seem insignificant to you. You know, holding a, a one and a half year old on a plane see, might seem a whole lot less significant than putting an IV in somebody. But in that moment, if I'm not holding the one and a half year old, Angela's not putting the IV in the plane, right? It's not happening. So 
roles all have a purpose and a function, whether they're behind the scenes, whether you're up front preaching like I am this morning, or whether you're holding infants in the nursery, those are all significant to the glory of God going on display over and over and over on a Sunday morning, to the body of Christ accomplishing the mission that we have been given to make disciples for the glory of God through the power of the gospel. We need everybody participating in that. Let us use them. We haven't been given a gift to just sit on the sideline. So I'll tell you this morning, if you need, you're like, I, I don't know, okay, I, I, maybe I do need to serve more. Come talk to me, come talk to Scott, come talk to Lene, talk to Jamie when he's back from va vacation next week. We have places that we can get you plugged in. We have lots of places for you to serve. And some of you are serving and you're still holding back. You're doing what's easy, not necessarily what God has blessed you with, not necessarily using the specific talents that God has given you. We have some people who are filling lots and lots of roles, probably too many. Some of you might have the talent to lead or to help oversee things and you're holding back because those people are doing lots of things, so it's fine. They've got it. Let us use them. What's holding you back, really? We don't use what God has given us when, when either we don't value him or because we don't value him, we don't value his church like we should. I know that, that's said very bluntly, but the, the gift is always less significant if we don't value the giver. I always appreciate a heartfelt gift from my wife more than a random little trinket from a stranger because I love my wife. I love her deeply. I understand the thought that went into that gift. When you value Jesus, you will value your gifts that he's given you. You'll value using them in his church because it is his church. It is his bride. I don't say this because we're like hurting in some ministry. In fact, most of our ministries are doing really well from a staffing perspective. That's not why I'm standing up here saying it. I'm just preaching the text. When you value Jesus, you will value your gifts and you will use them in his church. You have a role. Paul had a role and so do we. Three realities because Jesus is essential. We have a master, we have a role. And the third is this, we have a mission. We have a mission. Read on with me back in Romans chapter one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. What's Paul's job according to the text? What was he supposed to do? He was set apart for the gospel of God. He was supposed to go and proclaim the gospel to the nations. We saw the progression of that as we studied the book of Acts not that long ago. 
So there's a lot there, but before we get too deep into the what he was doing, I, I wanna really get clarity from this text on the gospel, because again, that's what Paul is gonna do over and over and over through the book of Romans. And in a very Pauline way, which we're gonna see a lot, he heaps phrase upon phrase to clarify what he's saying right here in this text. So what's the gospel of God? It, the first is, it's this, it's the promised message, the promised message. It was promised beforehand, we see in verse two. It's not some new message, he's saying. Jews, this is not a new message. This is the same message that was promised beforehand. And how was it promised? Through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul would have never thought of the gospel as something entirely new. No, he would have thought of it as the fulfillment of the promises that were in the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who would crush the head of the serpent that we saw in Genesis 3.17. He is the one who would come to save the world and fulfill the promise that God would never have to flood the world again, as we saw just a few weeks ago in the story of Noah. This isn't new. It's been God's plan ever since the garden, ever since the fall, really before the foundation of the world, because God knows no time. This is going to become Paul's entire argument in the book of Romans. Founding the gospel in the history of the world. It's grounded in the Old Testament. It's grounded in everything that the Jews would know. It's not a Jew or a Gentile thing. It's an everyone thing. It's this promised message of Jesus coming the Messiah coming to save the world. So that's the first thing that the gospel is from this text. The second thing is this, it's, it's the promised person. The promised person concerning his son, verse three says, concerning his son. What, what in the world does, does that mean? Well, it, it's this little prepositional phrase that Paul uses that it's hard in the Greek to know whether it ties back to promised ahead of time or the gospel, but either way, it doesn't really matter. It has the same meaning. It, it, it's the focus of the gospel is a person. It's not an act. It's a person, not just an act, okay? So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about Jesus. Jesus is essential to the gospel. You're like, well, yeah, but... I mean, think about it. No Jesus, no gospel. To be gospel-centered, as we often state that we are, inherently has to mean that we are Jesus-centered. The two are synonymous, and Paul is putting those things together here. The gospel is about a person. As we would say, all of Scripture is about a person. That's what he's founding here in the text. Jesus is the message of the gospel. Who was descended from David? Second part of verse three. Since Jesus is the son and will later be identified as the, the son of David, we see that Paul has shown that membership in the people of God depends on being rightly related to Jesus, not about who is your mom and dad. That's significant. It's not just about a lineage. The Jews were really fixed on the fact that it should be about a lineage. He's gonna really elaborate on that in chapters nine through 11. We'll be there 
by the time I'm 45 at least. The gospel message is about being in right relationship with a person. This is what Paul's emphasizing in this phrase. It's not about who your mom and dad are. And he was declared to be the son of God in power. He was declared to be the son of God in power. What, is, what does that mean? It, at first glance, that seems a little problematic, if we're honest, right? Like, he, he was declared to be the son? Not until the resurrection? I, uh, what, what, do we, what do we do with that? Was Jesus not the son of God before that? Well, obviously, that's not true. I mean, just read the Gospels. We see very early on in the book of John, especially, that Jesus is called the Son of God over and over and over. Jesus is proclaimed to be the Son of God. So that's obviously not the understanding of this phrase. Jesus was exalted to a position of rule and authority at his resurrection that he didn't previously have. We see this in the book of Philippians chapter two when it talks about the humility of Jesus. How does it end? It says, therefore God has highly exalted him. Because of what Jesus came, he has gained a unique place in the Godhead to be the one that is exalted. So the spirit is working to ignite our hearts to worship Jesus and God is sovereignly working to point us to Jesus. There's an exaltation of Jesus that has happened because of what he did at Calvary, because of his resurrection. It's this already and not yet tension that we always live in. Doug, Doug Moo talked about it this way. He's a commentator. He said this, the qualification of in power moves us to understand that Jesus was not somehow adopted by God at the resurrection called adoptionism. It's a wrong theology that can be taken from this text if not interpreted properly. But instead, he was given the power to reign, which he did not possess on earth. In other words, Jesus did not move from human Messiah to a divine son of God, but from son as Messiah to son as Messiah and reigning Lord. There was this reigning that Jesus received because of the work at Calvary. Here's the point. You're like, there's a lot of theology here. Paul has been entrusted with the message of the gospel, which is the work of God. And he has been doing this through his son all through the Old Testament. That's the point of all of these little prepositional phrases that we're diving into. Jesus is a really, really big deal. He is now exalted because of the resurrection. Jesus is the promised Messiah who will, who will save his people, who did save his people. Paul has been set apart to proclaim Jesus. And guess what? So have we. Look at 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Church, we have been entrusted with this message. We have been entrusted to proclaim the work of Jesus. We have been entrusted to exalt him, to make much of him to the world around us. He earned that at his resurrection and we have been given that message. The church has been given that message. You have been given that message. Remember the, the parable of the talents? 
So one guy comes and he gets 10 and he goes and he invests them and that goes well for him. One guy gets five and he does the same thing. He invests them and it goes well. And, and one guy gets one and he goes and buries it. Because he says, I knew you were a harsh master. And, and what's the, the conclusion that the master says to those two servants? To the first two, what's he say? Well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. What's he do to the, the third? He casts him into the outer darkness, the text says. He casts him out. We've been entrusted like these servants were entrusted with the talents. We've been entrusted with a message. It's the point of the parable. We're supposed to go out and proclaim, not bury it, not hide it. We have a message to proclaim to the world. But here's the thing. It's easy for you to take a sermon like this and walk out of here being motivated by guilt. Yeah, you're right. I have a message. I have these talents I need to be using. And just feel guilty and feel the shame of needing to do better. You, you can't walk away. I don't want you to walk away this morning saying, ah, I gotta submit better. I gotta serve more. I need to proclaim Jesus better. I want you to walk out of here getting Jesus on your mind more, to set your things, to set your mind on things above, not on the things of this world, because that's what's actually gonna motivate you. Guilt might get you to sign up for a ministry tomorrow, but that's not gonna endure for years and years to come. But if you get your heart and mind set on Jesus, Jesus, that's going to change your world. It's going to make you want to proclaim the message. It's going to make you want to use your gifts to serve him in a church. You need to get your mind on Jesus. That, that's the point. That's the entire point that Paul is going to make over and over and over in the book of Romans. Jesus is way bigger than you think. The gospel has way more impact than you give it credit for. Drew prayed this earlier. Our sinfulness is way worse than we think and the gospel is way greater than we think. Look to Jesus. He is the exalted, eternally promised Messiah. He is the risen and reigning Lord. And because he is those things, we can trust him with our everyday. You can trust him enough to give him your loyalty as his servant. You can trust him enough to, to serve him. You will want to proclaim him because he's that amazing. So where, where I want you to end this morning is simple. I want you to end with your affection stirred for Jesus. Th these other things are a byproduct You can't live today without Jesus. He is holding everything together, Colossians 1 tells us. You can't function at work without Jesus. He's orchestrating all the events of your day. Jesus is essential to you knowing who you are, how your life should function, and what the purpose of your life actually is. But I fear, church, that we don't actually live like this. I fear that we make Jesus the McDonald's of essential. 
It may be nice to get a Big Mac when the world is shut down, but I can surely live without it. Is that how we treat Jesus? Like, it'd be, it's nice to spend time with him, but I don't really need that in my day. It, 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 it might be convenient to have McDonald's sometimes, but it's surely more of a convenience than a necessity. Look, church, your next breath doesn't come without Jesus sustaining it. You wanna live a fulfilled life? It doesn't come apart from Jesus. I've tried it. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. Your satisfaction won't come from freeing up your time by not using your gifts. Your satisfaction won't come from holding back from your relationship with other believers because they might hurt you. Your satisfaction will come when you pursue Jesus in every facet of your life. When Christ actually becomes our life. When you seek to live like him because of what he's done for you. It's only in seeing him more fully that you're actually gonna find fullness of joy, church. And yet we spend so many minutes of our days pursuing so many other things, like it's gonna satisfy, like it's gonna bring us the joy that we all desire and seek. But we've been created for the glory of God. We've been created to find that joy, but it only comes in one spot. That's in seeing Jesus. It's only through gospel-saturated, Jesus-drenched living in the moment by moment by moment of your every day. So what's in the way, church? What's catching your gaze? What's stopping you from getting to Jesus? What's got you more fired up than Jesus does? It's time to push that out. It's time to, to push that away. It's time to get serious about actually pursuing Jesus for who he is. To actually say, you know what? I can't live tomorrow without Jesus. And not functionally act like we can. We need to pursue Christ. Let's ask him to do that in our hearts right now. God, it's too easy. It's too easy to live like other things will bring us joy. I can live like my job's gonna bring me joy. I can even live like my family will bring joy. And I can find joy in those things, but only can I find true joy in them when I'm seeing you in them. When I'm living like that is the thing that is going to bring me joy, relationships are gonna fail, jobs are gonna change. But you don't. Your love, your affections towards us are immovable. So God, I, pr I pray for the conviction of the spirit for us to press out the things that need to go. 
And I pray for the joy that can only come from lives set on pursuing Jesus. Whatever that looks like and whatever job you've called us to and whatever gifts and talents you've given us, God, would we use them to pursue Jesus above all else? We need your spirit to stir that in our hearts because our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things and we wanna go after all the things that we wanna go after. Stop us from that. Help us to take our sin seriously so that we can pursue Jesus fully. Do that in our hearts. Make us people who are marked by our pursuit of Jesus Christ. That's my prayer. That's what I want to see grow in us as we study the book of Romans. Do that in our midst, I pray. It's in his precious name. Amen. Thanks, church. Have a great week. You are loved.